Blackstone Audiobooks presents Six Days of War, June 1967, and the Making of the Modern Middle East, by Michael B. Oren. Copyright 2002 by Michael B. Oren. Forward. The War of Attrition, the Yom Kippur War, the Munich Massacre and Black September, the Lebanon War, the controversy over Jewish settlements and the future of Jerusalem, the Camp David Accords, the Oslo Accords, the Intifada, all were the result of six intense days in the Middle East in June 1967. Rarely in modern times has so short and localized a conflict had such prolonged global consequences. Seldom has the world's attention been gripped and remained seized by a single event and its ramifications. In a very real sense, for statesmen and diplomats and soldiers, the war has never ended. For historians, it has only just begun. Many books have been written about what most of the world calls the Six-Day War, or as the Arabs prefer, the June 1967 War. The literature is broad because the subject was thrilling. The lightning pace of the action, the stellar international cast, the battlefield held holy by millions. There were heroes and villains, behind-the-scenes machinations and daring tactical moves. There was the danger of nuclear war. Chapter 5 The War Day 1, June 5th Israel's Air Force strikes. The ground war begins. Jordan and Syria counterattack. It started at 7.10 in the morning, Israel time, when 16 Magister Fuga jets, French manufactured, 1950s-era trainers, newly outfitted with rockets, took off from the airfield at Hatzor. The Fugas were transmitting on frequencies used by Mystère and Mirage jets, and, simulating those craft, they flew in a routine patrol pattern. Four minutes later, the real fighters, Uragan bombers, left Hatzor airfield, followed five minutes after that by a squadron of mirages from Ramat David and fifteen twin-engine Vators from Hatzarim. By 7.30, close to two hundred planes were aloft. With them went the orders issued that morning by Air Force Commander Motti Hod. The spirit of Israel's heroes accompany us to battle— from Joshua bin Nun, King David, the Maccabees, and the fighters of 1948 and 1956, we shall draw the strength and courage to strike the Egyptians who threaten our safety, our independence, and our future. Fly, soar at the enemy, destroy him and scatter him throughout the desert, so that Israel may live secure in its land for generations." They flew low, often no more than fifteen meters, to avoid detection by any of Egypt's eighty-two radar sites. Most of the planes turned west, toward the Mediterranean, before banking back in the direction of Egypt. Others raced down the Red Sea toward targets deep in the Egyptian interior. Radio silence was strictly observed. Communication would be limited to hand signals, even as flight paths crossed. The name of the game is reaching the Egyptian coast without being spotted, Colonel Rafi Halev, chief of IAF operations, had lectured his pilots. In the event of mechanical trouble, there could be no calls for assistance, he warned them. They would have to crash in the sea. 
But those pilots also had major advantages. They were better trained than their Egyptian adversaries, had more flying time, and almost all of their 250 planes, 65 Mirages, 35 Super Mystères, 35 Mystères Mark IVs, 50 Organs, and 20 Vatroa light bombers, and 45 Fugas, were operational. These had repeatedly practiced focus, carrying it out on mock-ups of Egyptian airfields under circumstances of near-total secrecy. Only a few ministers knew of the plan, while members of the general staff received no more than a single-page summary. On the other hand, a great deal was known about Israel's targets, the location of each Egyptian jet, together with the name and rank and even the voice of its pilot. Most of this information had been obtained through electronic means, but some was the product of espionage. Wolfgang Lotz, a German-born Israeli spy posing as a former SS officer, obtained vital details from the Egyptian military leaders he befriended until his capture in 1964. Other high-placed sources, among them an intelligence officer named Anwar Ifrim and Ali al-Alfi, Nasser's personal masseur, contributed to what Hod later called Israel's real-time intelligence on Egypt's aircraft. The Egyptians, for their part, did little to shield their planes. These were concentrated by type, MiGs, Ilyushins, Topolovs, each to its own base, allowing the Israelis to prioritize their targets. Though proposals for constructing concrete hangars had been submitted by the Air Force and approved, none had ever been implemented. Egypt's jets were parked on open-air aprons without so much as sandbags surrounding them. A fighter jet is the deadliest weapon in existence in the sky, Hod was fond of saying, but on the ground it is utterly defenseless. Almost all of Egypt's planes were on the ground at that moment, their pilots eating breakfast. Assuming that any Israeli attack would begin at dawn, the MiGs had already flown their sunrise patrols and had returned to base at 8.15 Egypt time, an hour ahead of Israel's. Only four training flights were in the air, none of them armed. Taking off from Almaza base, however, were two Ilyushin-14 transports. In one, bound for the Bir al-Tamada base, flew Field Marshal Amer and Air Commander Sidki Mahmoud. In the other, Internal Intelligence Chief Hossein al-Shafi, the Iraqi Prime Minister, and a senior Soviet advisor headed for Abu Suwayr. All of the army's commanders were either seated in those two planes or waiting for them to land. Noting the Aleutians on their radar screens, the Israelis were concerned that the planes would detect their approaching squadrons. Such an alarm was indeed sounded, though not by the bombers, which calmly climbed to cruising altitude, the warning rather came from Ajlun. Supplied by Britain, Jordan's radar facility at Ajlun, near Jerash, was one of the most sophisticated in the Middle East. At 8.15am, the station's screens were suddenly studded with blips. Though the Jordanians had grown accustomed to large numbers of Israeli aircraft heading out to sea, the density of the concentration was unprecedented. The officer on duty radioed in grape, inup in Arabic, the prearranged code word for war, to General Riyadh's headquarters in Amman. Riyadh, in turn, relayed the information to Defence Minister Shams Badran in Cairo, and there it remained, indecipherable. The Egyptians had changed their encoding frequencies the previous day, but without updating the Jordanians. The Israelis had also altered their frequencies, leaving Ajlun's observers to wonder whether the blips were IAF planes or foreign aircraft, 
British or American, launched from carriers at sea. They watched as the radar suddenly showed a diversion eastward, towards Sinai, and then cabled the code word repeatedly. But even if those messages could have been read, Badran was not present to read them. The defence minister had gone to bed only a few hours before, leaving strict orders not to be disturbed. Similarly absent were Colonel Masud al-Junaidi, in charge of decoding, and Air Operations Chief General Gamal Afifi. At his subsequent trial for incompetence, Afifi claimed, I was out of the army for ten years before that, and less than six months in that job. Thank God I wasn't there, for the man who was at least knew who to call and what to do. Had I been there, the situation would have been much worse. Air Force Intelligence also reported extensively on the Israeli attack, but the officers at Supreme Headquarters, devoted to Amer and distrustful of Nasser loyalists in the Air Force, ignored them. For the Israelis, those minutes were pivotal. The suspense was incredible, Etzer Weizmann recounted. He had not resigned in the end, swallowing his pride and remaining chief of operations. But Weizmann cared little about ground battles. His main concern was the Air Force and the focus plan he had helped originate. For five years I had been talking of this operation, explaining it, hatching it, dreaming of it, manufacturing it link by link, training men to carry it out. Now, in another quarter of an hour, we would know if it was only a dream, or whether it would come true. The plan, requiring dozens of squadrons from different bases to rendezvous silently over eleven targets between twenty and forty-five minutes flying time away, was labyrinthine in its complexity, and exceedingly hazardous. All but twelve of the country's jets were thrown into the attack. American football fans would call it a Hail Mary, leaving the country's skies virtually defenseless. Innumerable practice runs had convinced IAF commanders that the Egyptian Air Force could be destroyed, even if it managed to get off the runway, in as little as three hours. Yet Rabin continued to entertain doubts, and even ordered commando units to prepare for nocturnal attacks on enemy airstrips in the event that focus failed. Now Rabin, along with Diane, waited in IAF headquarters with Weizmann and the anxious commander of Israel's Air Force. The first forty-five minutes felt like a day, said Hod, on whose shoulders fell the immediate responsibility for the attack. A lean, taciturn former kibbutznik, Hod had smuggled Holocaust survivors into Palestine after World War II, and then, prior to the War of Independence, smuggled in a British Spitfire as well. Throughout the battles of 1948 and 1956, he had earned a reputation as a skilled and cool-headed pilot— less known for brilliance than for his resourcefulness and grit. Cincinnatus-like, his strongest desire was to return to farming, but Weizmann had insisted that Hod replace him as Air Force Chief early in 1966. Since then, he had concentrated on refining focus, reducing the turnaround time for refueling and rearming jets to less than eight minutes. The Egyptian turnaround rate, by comparison, was eight hours— he may not be able to quote the Hebrew poet Bialik or Shakespeare, Weizmann said of Hod, but he will screw the Arabs in plain Hebrew. Sweating, guzzling pitchers of water, like a giant radiator, Weizmann observed, Hod waited for news of the opening wave of attack. The lead formations had now passed over the sea where, using electronic jamming equipment, they were able to elude detection by Soviet vessels. At 7.30 Israel time, the first targets came into view. 
in the huge bases of Faid and Kibrit, for example, which Egyptian intelligence had erroneously concluded were out of Israel's range, the jets were parked on the aprons, in rows or in semicircular revetments. Many airfields had only one runway. Block it, and the planes supposed to use it were doomed. In the sky, the visibility was excellent, the wind factor close to zero. Conditions were optimal for attack. The Israeli jets now swooped up sharply to as high as 9,000 feet, exposing themselves to Egyptian radar and sending Egyptian pilots out to the tarmac, scrambling. Few would reach their planes. The jets dove. They approached in foursomes and attacked in pairs, each making three passes, four if time permitted, the first for bombing and the rest to strafe. Priority was to be given to destroying the runways, then to the long-range bombers that threatened Israeli cities, and then to the jet fighters, the MiGs. Last to be raided were missile, radar, and support facilities. Each sortie was to take between seven and ten minutes. With a twenty-minute return flight, an eight-minute refueling time, and ten minutes rest for the pilot, the planes would be in action again well within an hour. During that hour, moreover, the Egyptian bases would be under almost uninterrupted attack. The sky gradually cleared as we approached the target, remembered Avihu bin Nun, a captain commanding a formation of Mystère over Faid. As I dived and released my bombs, I saw four MiG-21s at the end of the runway lining up to take off. I pulled the bomb release, began firing, and hit two of the four which went up in flames. The bombs bin Nun dropped were Durandals, a top-secret device developed jointly with the French, who had named it after Roland's sword. Once released, the 180-pound bomb was stabilized by a retro-rocket and a parachute, until it was directly over its target and pointed downwards at 60 degrees, at which point a booster rocket drove it deep into the pavement. The Durandals left craters five meters wide and 1.6 meters deep, rendering runways unusable. Nor could they be repaired, as delayed fuses on many of the bombs continued exploding. Over one hundred of the devices were dropped on Abu Suwer alone in less than one hour. Binan continued, We destroyed sixteen of the forty MiGs scattered around the field, and paralyzed a SAM-2 battery on our way back. We could see all the other Egyptian airfields in flames. Below, the Egyptian pilots were in a state of shock, incredulous of Israel's ability to penetrate their defences, to catch them so totally off guard. I stood on the runway at exactly 9 a.m., ready to leave with the training sortie, recalled Brigadier General Tassin Zaki, commander of the Mali space. I heard the noise of jet planes at the very same moment, and I looked toward the direction of the noise and saw two grey super-mystère planes. They dropped two bombs at the beginning of the runway. Two additional planes were behind them, and they dropped two bombs in the middle of the runway, and the last two planes dropped two bombs at the end of the runway. After a couple of minutes the whole runway was bombed. It was a complete surprise. The Egyptian planes were inextricably trapped, easy prey for the thirty-millimeter cannons and heat-seeking rockets that next raked them. At the Beni Suwaif and Luxor airfields west of the canal, colossal Topolov-16 bombers and their ten-ton payloads exploded with such force that one of the attacking jets was literally blown out of the sky. In Sinai, mixed formations of Mirage and Mystère fighters hit the Ford bases at Jabal Libni, Bir al-Tamada, and Bir Gafkafa, strafing the scores of parked MiGs and incinerating the few that attempted to take off. 
Only at Al Arish was the runway spared in the assumption that it would soon be serving Israeli transports. By the end of that first wave, eight o'clock Israel time, an average of twenty-five sorties had been carried out against Cairo West, Faid, and Abu Suwer bases. Four airfields in Sinai and two in Egypt had been entirely knocked out. The main communication cable linking Egyptian forces in Sinai with Supreme Headquarters had been severed. The most devastating damage, though, was done to the air force itself. In little over half an hour, the Egyptians had lost two hundred and four planes, half of their air force, all but nine of them on the ground. The Israelis were stunned. No one had ever imagined that a single squadron could neutralize an entire air base, and that Focus's kill ratio would exceed expectations by almost one hundred percent. Those expectations had taken into account the possibility that Egyptians would soon overcome their initial shock and rally, shooting down as many as a quarter of their attackers' planes. Indeed, Israeli pilots were ordered to reserve five minutes of their combat fuel and a third of their ammunition for dogfights. None occurred, however, nor was there significant ground fire. All of Egypt's 100 anti-aircraft batteries, its 27 Sam II missile sites, had been issued no-fire orders by Amer, who feared they might mistake his plane for one of Israel's. Only in Cairo did the anti-aircraft units try to repel the planes, shooting wildly at the Delta-wing aircraft overhead. We were on high alert with more than enough ammunition. But we received no orders to shoot," attested Saeed Ahmad Rabi, the major commanding the guns. Finally, I opened fire myself and thought I'd be court-martialed for it, but instead I received a medal for valor and have kept my job ever since. Rabi claimed to have downed several Israeli jets. In all, the IAF lost eight aircraft in the first wave and five pilots. One of the planes, damaged but unable to break radio silence, was destroyed by Israeli Hawk missiles after it strayed over Dimona. Only now, with the first strike completed, were the results made known to headquarters. These seemed too fantastic to believe, and it was not until Hod had personally debriefed his pilots that he could confirm their remarkable success. A stone, just one, but of agonizing weight, rolled off the heart. Dayan wrote. Yet that same stone would remain on the Israeli public. The extent of the IAF's success would be kept secret for as long as possible, delaying a UN-imposed ceasefire while Israeli tanks rolled into Sinai. At 8:15, Dayan issued the red sheet password. The ground war was about to begin. The second wave of fighters, meanwhile, reached its destinations: fourteen enemy bases, nearly half of them west of the canal, and all of Egypt's radar sites. Though the Israelis no longer enjoyed the element of surprise and no longer observed radio silence, resistance from these facilities was moderate and largely confined to anti-aircraft fire. The IAF carried out 164 sorties in just over 100 minutes and destroyed another 107 planes, while suffering only nine losses. Of the 420 combat aircraft in Egypt's arsenal that morning, 286 were destroyed. Thirty Topolov sixteens, twenty-seven Ilyushin twenty-eight medium bombers, twelve Sukhoi seven fighter bombers, ninety MiG twenty-one interceptors, twenty MiG nineteens, seventy-five MiG seventeens, thirty-two transport planes and helicopters, and almost a third of their pilots killed. Thirteen bases were rendered inoperable, along with twenty-three radar stations and anti-aircraft sites.
At 10.35, Hod turned to Rabin and reported, The Egyptian Air Force has ceased to exist. As the picture of the battlefield became clear in Israel, in Egypt and the rest of the Arab world it grew deeply obfuscated. Officers at the ravaged air bases were aware that a terrible tragedy had transpired. The pilot, Hashim Mustafa Hassan, stationed at Bir al-Tamada, described the feeling. Some thirty seconds from the end of the first attack, a second wave of planes arrived. We ran about the desert looking for cover, but the planes didn't shoot. They merely circled, their pilots surprised that the base was completely destroyed and that no targets remained. We were the only targets, weak humans scurrying in the desert with handguns as our only means of self-defense. It was a sad comedy, pilots of the newest and best-equipped jets fighting with handguns. Five minutes after the beginning of the attack, the Israeli planes disappeared, and a silence prevailed that encompassed the desert and the noise of the fire that destroyed our planes and the airbase and the squadron. They completed their assignment in the best way possible, with a ratio of losses 100% for us, 0% for them. Brigadier Zaki had a similar experience. Helplessly he had watched as Hussein al-Shafi's plane, having barely managed to land on a secondary airstrip, was strafed by enemy mirages. The crew and passengers managed to escape, but those in an accompanying craft proved less fortunate. All died on the runway. Israel spent years preparing for this war, whereas we prepared for parades, he testified later. The drills for the annual Revolution Day parade went on for weeks, but there were no preparations for war. Surrounded by what Sidki Mahmoud called a forest of Israeli jets, Amer's plane could not land at all. It circled from base to burning base for nearly ninety minutes before touching down at Cairo's international airport. There, Colonel Mohammed Ayyub, Amer's Air Force liaison officer, was waiting with a drawn pistol, convinced that a coup had been staged against his boss. "'You want to murder him, you dogs!' Ayub shouted as the other officers present also pulled out their guns. Sidki Mahmud stepped between them, though, averting a firefight. "'Fools!' he scolded them. "'Put your guns away! Israel is attacking us!' Lacking military transportation, Amer took a taxi to Supreme Headquarters. Only thirty-seven of his MiGs were still flight-worthy, and he had nearly been shot out of the sky, but Amr was nevertheless elated. The war had finally begun. He promptly commanded Sidki Mahmud to provide air cover for the conquest of Israel's coast, Operation Leopard, and to deploy Egypt's newest Sukhoi jets, if necessary, with their Russian instructors. Amr then called Damascus and Baghdad, and requested that they execute Operation Rashid, the bombing of Israeli airfields, at once. The Iraqis consented, but then complained of technical delays. The Syrians claimed that their planes were presently engaged in a training exercise. Such disappointments did little to dampen the mood in Egypt's supreme headquarters, which seemed to the Soviet attaché S. Tarasenko tranquil, almost indifferent, the officers merely listening to the radio and drinking coffee. Throughout the capital, however, the citizenry was celebrating— the streets were overflowing with demonstrators, remembered Eric Rouleau, Middle East correspondent for Le Monde. Anti-aircraft guns were firing, hundreds of thousands of people were chanting, Down with Israel! We will win the war! But Rouleau, together with other foreign journalists, was not allowed near the front. All international phone lines were cut. The sole source of information was the government's communique. 
With an aerial strike against Cairo and across the UAR, Israel began its attack today at nine o'clock. Our planes scrambled and held off the attack. The accounts of that counter-strike were promising. A total of 86 enemy planes were reportedly shot down, including an American bomber. Egypt's losses were put at two. There is a good deal of effervescence and clapping at this news, American Ambassador Nolte reported. The radio is playing patriotic songs interspersed with calls for a return to Palestine and rendezvous in Tel Aviv. Amer wired General Riyadh in Amman with the news that, in spite of their initial surprise, the Israelis had lost 75% of their air power. The Egyptian army was hitting back and mounting an offensive from Sinai. Not present at Supreme Headquarters when the news of the Israeli airstrikes arrived, Nasser also welcomed the opening of hostilities and believed the tide would soon turn. Nevertheless, by ten o'clock, the height of the second wave, when the Air Force claimed to have downed 161 Israeli bombers, Nasser became suspicious. He tried contacting Amr, but received no reply. Sidki Mahmoud was also unreachable. One of the few men who would have told him the truth, Anwar Sadat, had secluded himself at home. Entering headquarters at eleven, Sadat heard from Soviet Ambassador Pojadayev and from other senior officers of the full extent of Egypt's disaster. I just went home and stayed in for days, he wrote, unable to watch the crowds chanting, dancing and applauding the faked-up victory reports which our mass media put out hourly. But Nasser remained in the dark, not the least because no one in the army or the government dared enlighten him. All went along with a version broadcast on Cairo radio that our airplanes and our missiles are at this moment shelling all Israel's towns and villages, that called on every Arab to avenge the dignity lost in 1948 to advance across the armistice line to the den of the gang itself to Tel Aviv. Red Sheet Over Sinai Secretly advanced during the night, camouflaged and observing radio silence, Israeli forces on the Egyptian border had watched as successive waves of Israeli planes soared overhead. Then at 7.50 a.m. the Red Sheet password arrived and the columns moved out. General Tal's Ugda, an IDF division expanded for specific tasks, composed of 250 tanks, 50 guns, a paratrooper brigade and a reconnaissance unit, crossed the border at two points, opposite Nahal Oz and south of Khan Yunis. They proceeded swiftly, holding their fire to prolong the element of surprise. Ahead lay the Rafa Gap, a seven-mile stretch containing the shortest of the three main routes through Sinai to Alcantara and the Suez Canal. For this reason, Egypt positioned a full four divisions in the area, reinforcing a warren of minefields, pillboxes, underground bunkers, hidden gun emplacements and trench works. For the attacking Israelis, there was little choice but to break through these defences. The terrain on either side of the road, sand and ravines, was impassable. Yet that was precisely the Israeli plan, to hit the enemy at selected key points and with a mailed fist of concentrated armour. A hardened veteran of World War II and the two previous Arab-Israeli wars, Tal had commanded the armoured corps since 1964, turning it into a highly disciplined and mobile force. Tested in earlier skirmishes with the Syrians, Tal himself had been wounded, the corps was to crack Egypt's strongest defences, sowing confusion and demoralisation, precipitating a domino-like retreat. 
Upon completing his pre-battle briefing, Tal had reminded his officers that wars were rarely fought according to plan. They only had to follow one principle. Everyone attacks, everyone penetrates, without looking sideways or back. The Armoured Corps had broken through the same area in 1956 in just over 36 hours. This time they had 24. For Tal's division, the going at first was easy. Leading the thrust was Israel's finest armoured brigade, the 7th, under Colonel Shmuel Gonen. Swinging south of Gaza, Gonen's column was greeted by Egyptian soldiers who mistook its tanks for their own. Similarly, the commanders of Egypt's 11th Brigade, equipped with Stalin tanks, the Middle East's biggest, allowed Israeli paratroopers of the 35th Brigade to slog relatively unmolested through the dunes as they made their frontal assault. "'Apparently someone in heaven was watching over us,' remarked the commander, Raphael Raffel Aitan, after the war. "'Every unintended action they took, and every unintended action we took, always turned out to our advantage. But Israeli advances were more than a product of luck. Egyptian intelligence had concluded that enemy movements in the sector were merely diversions for the main axis of attack opposite Rafah and Khan Yunis.' Gonen, Goridish, thirty-seven, an upholsterer's son who left his religious studies at age thirteen to join the Haganah, was a prepossessing officer, staunch and bullish. The day before he had assured his men that, "'We will thrash them, the Egyptians, as we did in 1948 and 1956, that the Israelis would wash their feet in the canal and topple Nasser in Cairo. But he also reminded them that, "'If we do not win, we will have nowhere to come back to.' and cautioned them to conserve ammunition. The goal was not to attack Rafa directly, that was left to the paratroopers, but to outflank it from Khan Yunus in the north. An axis was chosen farthest from the Egyptian guns and downwind of the sea to avoid poison gas. From the south, 60th Brigade under Colonel Menachem Aviram, with 86 Sherman and AMX tanks, would enclose Khan Yunus in an iron vice. Though he fielded a formidable arsenal, including 58 centurions and 66 patterns, Gonen entrusted the breakthrough at Khan Yunus to a single tank battalion. This advanced on the town, encountering only scant opposition. Then, suddenly all hell opened up, recalled Ori Or, an officer in the reconnaissance unit, half of whose men became casualties. Artillery shells, machine guns, anti-tank guns, everything fired at us. Along the whole area, Egyptian T-34 tanks took their positions and fired. An Israeli half-track was hit by a shell before it could get off the road. All eight soldiers inside were killed. Another tank battalion was brought up, and this too was pummeled. Some of the fiercest resistance came from the 20th Palestinian Division, not considered a first-rate unit, under the command of General Mohammed Abd al-Munim Husni, Gaza's military governor. Gonen's six lead tanks were quickly knocked out, and thirty-five of his officers killed. Avram's force became bogged down in the sand, while the dunes created a navigational nightmare for the paratroopers. "'This is a battle for life and death,' Tal had told his men. "'We will attack all the time, no matter what the cost in casualties.' The Israelis' casualties were indeed high as they fought their way through anti-tank ditches, roadside pillboxes, and stone terraces that forced them off the main axes and into a maze of alleys. Yet their progress was remarkable. In little over four hours, Gonen's brigade reached the Khan Yunis railway junction, 
and then covered, in twin columns, the nine remaining miles to Rafah. Rafah, with its sprawling military camps, was in fact to be circumvented, the main target being the Egyptian defences at Sheikh Zawaid, eight miles to the southwest. These were held by two brigades of the 7th Division, a unit created three weeks before in anticipation of Operation Dawn and Egypt's conquest of the Negev. Led by the Commandant of the Army's Infantry School, Major General Abd Al-Aziz Suleiman, most of the division's officers were also instructors, and as such, ill-prepared for the Israelis' unconventional approach from the sea and through the sands. Nor, with their twenty guns and sixty-six largely antiquated tanks, were the Egyptians a match for the larger Israeli force of more modern centurions and patterns. We were exposed to a heavy armour attack on several axes, with the sea to our backs in the north and constant aerial and artillery bombardment, recalled Battalion Commander Izat Arafa. We had almost no communications with other headquarters in the sector and no knowledge of what was happening on the battlefield. Yet, deeply entrenched and camouflaged, the defenders exacted a painful price. The Egyptian artillery positions were dug in low, Gonen later told reporters. They fired ten rounds at a time, and with each volley a tank went up in flames. We left many of our dead soldiers at Rafah, and many burnt-out tanks. Heavy artillery and airstrikes had to be called in to enable the lead Israeli elements to break through. Suleiman and several of his staff were killed. Leaderless, many Egyptian troops abandoned their positions, leaving behind forty tanks and some two thousand dead and wounded. The battle turned into a rout, complete except for Avram's battalion, which, having misjudged the enemy's flank, found itself pinned between strongholds. Extricating the force took several hours, yet by nightfall the Israelis had finished mopping up. Thousands of Egyptian soldiers, hundreds of jeeps and trucks, streamed past the attackers as they regrouped on the road to Al-Arish. That road was now open to the IDF. Already by late afternoon, elements of the IDF's 79th Armoured Battalion had charged through the seven-mile-long Girardi Defile, a narrow pass through shifting dunes. Its well-emplaced defenders, troops of the 112th Infantry Brigade, mistook the Israeli tanks for their own. The effect, later described by an IDF internal report, was eerie. On both sides of the road were dug-in tanks, anti-tank guns, mortar pits, and machine-gun nests, all linked by trenches and surrounded with mines. The longest distance between any two positions was fifty metres. The Egyptians were so surprised by the Israeli column that they did not shoot. The Israeli commander thought the Egyptians had fled, and so told his men to hold their fire. Only when the column reached the midway point was it revealed that the Egyptians had not fled. The pass changed hands several times before the Israelis finally cleared it and emerged at its western end, having advanced over twenty miles in a single afternoon. Just beyond lay the outskirts of Al-Arish, a town of forty thousand, and the administrative hub of Egypt's army in Sinai. We reached our objective at ten in the evening in the pitch darkness, wrote Lieutenant Yossi Peled. Egyptian tanks were burning for as far as we could see, and Egyptian soldiers lying between them. But many of our tanks were also ablaze, and the Israelis lying beside them were no longer alive. In all, the Israelis lost twenty-eight tanks, ninety-three men were wounded, and sixty-six killed. 
However costly, Israel's offensive was proceeding well ahead of schedule, so much so that a combined sea and airborne assault on Al-Arish planned for the next day was cancelled, and the paratroopers preparing for it were diverted to Jerusalem. Though the war was far from decided, a crucial battle had been won, and under circumstances in which the antagonists were generally well matched, and which air power, focus still preoccupied the IAF, played only a minor role. A similar balance prevailed farther to the south, in the heavily fortified area six miles deep and two wide of Umm Katef. This was the first line of Egypt's conqueror strategy, and its defences were a microcosm of Sinai's. Three linear dispositions, trench systems, minefields, anti-tank and machine-gun positions, eighty guns, ninety tanks, and sixteen thousand men, between which the enemy could be crushed. Guarding the vital Abu Agela junction leading into the peninsula's interior, to the Mitla Pass and Ismailia, the stronghold had withstood repeated Israeli onslaughts in 1956, surrendering only when its supplies were exhausted. Since then, Om Katev had been further buttressed by powerful redoubts at Ruwafa Dam and at nearby Al-Qusayma. Manning these positions were troops of the 2nd Infantry Division who, though battle-ready, were commanded by Major General Saadi Naguib, a political appointee best known as one of Amer's drinking mates. Facing Naguib was Arik Sharon. At 39, Sharon cut a dashing, if controversial, figure, who had earned both censure and encomium for his role in the retaliation raids of the 1950s and the bloody Mitla Pass battle in the Sinai campaign. In his previous position as IDF Director of Training, Sharon had thoroughly studied Um Katef's defences, and was determined not to repeat Israel's mistakes of the previous war. Sharon's plan was to cross the sand wastes deemed impassable by the Egyptians and to deliver an armoured thrust from the north. Simultaneously from the west, his tanks would engage the Egyptian bastions on the Um Katef ridge, and block any reinforcements they might receive from Jabal Libni or Al-Arish. Israeli infantrymen would clear the three 3,000-yard trenches, while a mile behind them, heliborne paratroopers would silence the Egyptians' artillery park. Lastly, an armoured diversion would be made at Al-Qusayma, preoccupying and isolating its garrison. All this would be accomplished, Sharon hoped, in time for the three brigades of his 38th Division to join General Yoffe's 31st Division in assaulting the second Egyptian defence line, Jabal Libni, Bir Lahfan, and Bir Hassana, in central Sinai. At 8.15am, the lead centurion tanks of Colonel Natan Natkinir left Nitzana and crossed the border at Alauja, passing its abandoned UNEF posts. The Egyptians, though, staged successful delaying actions at Tarat Um, Um Tarfa, and Hill 181. An Israeli jet, swooping low, was downed by anti-aircraft fire. Then the guns at Um Katef opened up. Under heavy shell fire, struggling through dunes and mines, Israeli forces made their approaches from the north and the west. Casualties were high, and visibility confounded by a dust storm. Yet Nir's tanks managed to penetrate the northern flank of Abu Agela, Oakland, in the IDF's code, and by dusk all units were in position. Over ninety guns had been moved up to rain a punishing barrage on Um Katef, and civilian buses had brought the infantry reservists under Colonel Yakutiel Kuti Adam to within marching distance of the enemy trenches. The helicopters also arrived to ferry Colonel Danemat's 
paratroopers. These movements went totally unobserved by the Egyptians. Preoccupied with enemy probes against their perimeter, they waited in vain for Supreme Headquarters' order to counterattack, without which they would not move. As night fell, the Israeli assault troops lit their flashlights, each battalion a different color to prevent friendly fire exchanges. But before the final signal could be given, Sharon received a phone call from Gavish. The southern command chief recommended that the attack be postponed for 24 hours to allow the air force, now free for ground support, to soften up the target. Sharon disagreed, but his response was garbled by electrical interference. The conversation was cut off, but then another call came for Gavish. The air force was rescinding its offer of assistance. Its planes were needed elsewhere. A second front had suddenly opened with Jordan. The whip cracks. It is always possible, if hostilities do occur, that Jerusalem will be spared, surmised Evan Wilson, America's consul general in the city, before the outbreak of war. Seemingly shielded from the upheaval engulfing the region, Jerusalem's mood remained relatively calm. Along the two-mile line separating the Jewish from the Arab sectors, Israeli and Jordanian soldiers faced each other with the same methodical vigilance they had maintained for the last nineteen years. The bifurcation of the city was complete, effected by high firewalls, barbed wire, and mines. In some cases even houses were divided where property fell within the width of the pencil used to draw the armistice map in 1949. And while bunkers and observation posts were often only meters apart, those manning them rarely came within visual, much less physical, contact. The night of June the 5th augured no change in this strange modus vivendi. Though small arms fire occasionally burst from Jordanian positions, the Israelis were under strict orders to ignore them. The IDF also cancelled the weekly convoy to Mount Scopus, together with a number of training exercises. Standing guard, we even took the magazines out of our oozes, Yoram Galon, a reservist serving in Jerusalem, remembered, just in case a bullet went off accidentally and ignited the front. The Israelis could not afford to fight. Much of Central Command's ammunition had been transferred southward to the Egyptian border, leaving a total of fifty vintage Sherman tanks, thirty-six cannons, and twenty-seven mortars to defend the greater Tel Aviv area. Within the capital, many reservists had been sent home. A mere seventy-one men held the line facing the Jordanian Legion. It seemed as if the security of the central sector was indeed based on miracles, General Narkis told an IDF review board after the war. We wanted to believe that the enemy would never attack. And yet Narkis did not share that belief. Hussein, in his eyes, was unreliable, had signed a treaty with Nasser, and had allowed Egyptian commandos onto his territory. If the Jordanians did strike, there was a good chance that Israel would lose several border areas, including the Lachish settlements and the Jerusalem suburb of Mavasaret Zion. Narkis's greatest fear, however, centred on the small, one-mile square enclave of Mount Scopus. Dominating Jerusalem's highest hill, Enclosing the buildings of the Hadassah Hospital and Hebrew University that had stood dormant since 1948, Mount Scopus was defended by a UN-monitored garrison of 85 policemen and 33 civilians. Though Israel had succeeded in smuggling some heavy arms into the enclave, it remained exceedingly susceptible to attack, both from the Mount of Olives to the east and to the north from the West Bank city of Ramallah.
and the fall of Mount Scopus would not only deal a tremendous blow to Israeli prestige—no conquest in Sinai could make up for it, Narkis warned—but would enable the Jordanians, by linking up with their forces in South Jerusalem, to isolate the city's 197,000 Jews. Little better was Israel's situation along the West Bank border. Though IDF contingency plans called for augmenting Israel's defences along the Eastern Front in time of war, none of the designated forces were available on June the 5th. Remaining were five reserve brigades, two in the north to guard the Jezreel Valley, and one each to protect Jerusalem, Lod Airport, and the approaches to Tel Aviv. While Israeli commanders often talked of grabbing land around Latrun, Hap, they called the manoeuvre in Yiddish, they knew that there could be no offensive action without those fifty Shermans. But the tanks of the 10th Harrell Brigade were being kept as a strategic reserve in Tel Aviv to block any Egyptian attack from the south. Our mission wasn't clear, recounted Narkis, who, in the Independence War, had fought with that same Harrell Brigade in its abortive attempt to seize Jerusalem's old city. There was no order to conquer the West Bank or the Jordan Valley, Yet I was certain that war would come, and certain that it would end in Jerusalem. Nargis was not surprised when, at 7.55 a.m., the air raid sirens began wailing in Israel's capital. Many other Israelis, however, soldiers and civilians, believed it was a mistake, even when the eight o'clock news carried the fabricated report of Egyptian tanks and planes moving toward the Israeli border. Nevertheless, emergency preparations were accelerated in the city— Hospitals went on high alert, and museum exhibitions, among them the Dead Sea Scrolls, were placed in secure storage. Broadcasting call-up codes, the radio directed reservists to their units. The government still hoped that Jordan would fire off a few shells, a salutatory salvo to fulfil its obligations to inter-Arab unity, Narkis put it, but would otherwise remain passive. To further ensure that passivity, Personal appeals would be sent to Hussein, urging him to show restraint. Diane opposed the idea. "'Doesn't Hussein know he's not supposed to attack us?' he asked. Alon, however, insisted that the monarch be warned. Three channels were selected—the U.S. State Department, British Foreign Office, and General Odd Bull in Jerusalem. Thus, at 8.30, Bull was summoned by Arthur Laurie, a veteran U.N. specialist at the Foreign Ministry, who told him— at 8.10, Egyptian planes were spotted crossing into our airspace, and our planes and armour have commenced action against them. In the name of the foreign minister, Lori asked that Bull urgently convey to King Hussein that Israel will not, repeat, not attack Jordan if Jordan maintains the quiet, but if Jordan opens hostilities, Israel will respond with all of its might. Bull, lanky and severe-looking, a former fighter pilot with nearly ten years' experience observing for the UN in the Middle East, was not impressed with the gesture. Ill-disposed toward Israel, he would dedicate his memoirs to redressing Norway's pro-Israel bias, he rejected the claim that Egypt had started the fighting and resented the tone of the text. This was a threat, pure and simple, and it is not the normal practice of the UN to pass on threats from one government to another, he responded. He wanted two hours to consult New York, but Laurie insisted that the message be conveyed immediately. By all appearances, Jordan was preparing for war. Such preparations had indeed been accelerated over the past twenty-four hours, as Jordanian troops were informed that the time had come to fight. The reserve ammunition was dispersed, attested General Ma'na Abu Nawa, 
commander of the positions abutting Mount Scopus. All the machine-gun belts were loaded, the shells primed. King Hussein showed no consternation when, at 8.50, his aide-de-camp, Colonel Ghazi, interrupted his breakfast with the announcement, "'Your Majesty, the Israeli offensive has begun in Egypt.' Calling his headquarters, Hussein learned of Amr's claim of crippling Israeli casualties and of Egypt's swift counterattack. Ajlun reported hundreds of aircraft flying from the direction of Sinai, actually returning Israeli jets, though the Jordanians assumed they were Egyptian. This information went a long way toward allaying the king's fears of Israeli attempts to conquer East Jerusalem and its 80,000 Arabs, or all or part of the West Bank. Jordan could go on the offensive. The extent of that offensive, however, had to be determined by Hussein. He entered headquarters just after nine, and found that Riyadh had already ordered a number of far-reaching actions, including the destruction of Israeli airfields by combination of artillery fire, jet bombing, and commando attacks. Requests had gone out from ten Syrian brigades to descend from the Golan to the Jordan Valley, where they would meet with a 150 Iraqi tanks and cross the Jordan on assault bridges that Riyadh requisitioned from Egypt and Saudi Arabia. He also instructed the 2nd Imam Ali Brigade to seize Government Hill Ridge in South Jerusalem. These operations, aimed at covering the flank of the Egyptian column that Riyadh believed would soon roll north from Beersheba and Bethlehem. To prevent any outflanking manoeuvre, an Israeli thrust into the west bank from the Negev, Riyadh further shifted Jordan's tank brigades southward. The 60th descended to the Jerusalem-Jericho Road, and the 40th to Hebron. Once implemented, these instructions would embroil Jordan fully in the war with Israel. Though well-liked by the Jordanians, one of the best Arab officers, not only in the Arab world but anywhere, one infantry colonel Awad Bashir Khalidi extolled, Riyadh had not had time to fully study the defence of the area, nor did he understand the mentality of the Arab legion, where command structure closely paralleled family ties. He didn't know our terrain— said Shafiq Ujelat, an intelligence officer. He didn't know how we talked to one another or how we fight. By giving priority to Egypt's immediate needs of neutralizing enemy airfields and supporting its supposed offensive, he ignored Jordan's concern for safeguarding the West Bank and East Jerusalem. This fact was pointed out by several general staff members, most vociferously Atif al-Majali, who stressed that neither artillery nor armour was available to support an assault on Government House Ridge. Better to take Mount Scopus immediately, he argued, and implement Operation Tariq. Harsh words were exchanged. Al-Majali stormed out. But in the end, Riyadh's word proved final. Hussein, who alone had the power to rescind or alter the orders, said nothing. Rather, speaking on Radio Amman at 9.30, Hussein informed his people that Jordan had been attacked, and that the hour of revenge had come. He had just received a brief telephone call from Nasser, in which the Egyptian president had confirmed Amer's earlier claim of staggering Israeli losses and the destruction of its airfields. Quickly take possession of the largest possible amount of land in order to get ahead of the UN's ceasefire, Nasser urged him, anticipating that the Security Council would meet that night. The Iraqis assured Hussein, falsely, that their airplanes were already in action against Israel. Hussein was clearly excited by this news and distrustful of Israel's motives in asking for restraint. 
he may still have believed that limited shelling of bases and the capture of Government Hill Ridge, a UN area, would not provoke a full-scale Israeli counterattack. Ultimately, though, there was no choice but to comply with Riyadh's decisions. To survive politically, physically, Hussein had to fight. Thus, when Ambassador Burns found him in a forward observation position and handed him Lori's note, the king responded matter-of-factly, "'They started the battle,' he said. "'Well, they are receiving their reply by air. The lot has been cast.' The shelling of Israel from Jordan had already begun an hour earlier, at 10 a.m. Two batteries of the American-made 155mm Long Tom guns went into action, one zeroing in on the suburbs of Tel Aviv, and the other on Ramat David, northern Israel's largest airfield. The commanders of these units were instructed to lay a two-hour barrage on all enemy positions sighted on your lists, which included military bases and even civilian settlements situated in Israel's narrow midland. Harry McPherson, billeted at Barbour's house north of Tel Aviv, was awakened by the crump of explosions. Tanks soon joined in the fusillade, and then planes— at 11.50 a.m., 16 of Jordan's serviceable hawker-hunter fighters performed sorties near the towns of Netanya, Kfar Sirkin, and Kfar Saba. Though the attacks failed to inflict major damage—one civilian was killed and seven injured, and one transport plane destroyed—their psychological impact was weighty. Greeting Ambassador Burns outside Hussein's palace, the Soviet ambassador to Jordan remarked, "'Our estimate is that if the Israelis do not receive arms—' We think the Arabs will win the war if they are allowed to fight it to the finish. One result of Jordan's offensive was to draw both the Syrian and Iraqi air forces into the war. Syria activated Operation Rashid for the bombing of northern Israel, and by noon twelve of its MiGs were striking Galilee settlements, including Kibbutz Deganya, home to both Eshkol and Hod. Three of the planes were shot down and the rest driven off by Israeli fighters. Meanwhile, three Iraqi hunters strafed settlements in the Jezreel Valley, including Dayan's village of Nahalal. A Topolov-16 bomber, also from Iraq, attacked the lower Galilee town of Afula before being shot down near the Megiddo airfield. Again, the material damage was minimal. Several chicken coops and a senior citizen's home were hit. But sixteen Israeli soldiers were killed, most of them when the Topolov crashed. Damascus Radio quickly trumpeted that the Syrian Air Force has begun to bomb Israeli cities and to destroy its positions. The war had come to Israel's eastern front, and was soon engulfed Jerusalem as well. Intermittent machine-gun exchanges had been raging in the city since 9.30. The Jordanians gradually escalated the fighting, however, introducing three-inch mortars and 106mm recoilless rifles. General Nakis ordered his men to respond with small arms only, firing in a flat trajectory to avoid hitting civilians and holy places in the old city. They'd start shooting, and we would take pains not to answer, attested Colonel Eliezer Amitai, commander of the 16th Jerusalem Etzionai Brigade, a reserve unit comprised mostly of city residents. Like Nakis, Amitai had fought in Jerusalem in 1948 as a platoon commander with Harrell. Tanks couldn't fire. Recoilless rifles couldn't move around for fear of provoking the Jordanians. We wanted them to be quiet. Though increasingly anxious about Mount Scopus, Narkis adhered strictly to Diane's instructions to avoid any provocation of Jordan.
Even when, at 10.30, Jordan Radio announced that Arab Legion forces had taken Government Hill Ridge, a false claim, it turned out, the Israelis refrained from responding. So far, the Jordanians had reacted much as Israeli leaders had predicted, demonstrating their Arab solidarity, but in a limited way, short of all-out war. But then, at 11.15, that situation changed. Arab Legion howitzers launched the first of 6,000 shells on Jewish Jerusalem, beginning with Kibbutz Ramat Rachel in the south and Mount Scopus in the north, before ranging into the city centre and outlying neighbourhoods. Military installations were targeted, along with the Knesset and the Prime Minister's house, but the firing was also indiscriminate. Over 900 buildings would be damaged, among them the new Hadassah Hospital in Ein Kerem, where stained-glass windows by artist Marc Chagall were shattered. The roof of Mount Zion's Church of the Dormition was also set on fire. Over a thousand civilians were wounded, 150 seriously, 20 of them died. Very heavy machine and mortar fire, probably cannon, continuous in Jerusalem, reported the British Consul General at around 11.30. It looks as though Jordanians were pouring a lot into the new city. Jerusalem totally engulfed in war. Bullets have already hit the consulate, one narrowly missing Her Majesty's consul. Coming in the wake of their swift gains against Egypt, the sharp deterioration of the Jordanian border was the Israelis' first major setback in the war. Diane had wanted to avoid opening a second front, at least until the south was secured. Also, France had declared an arms embargo on the Middle East, French weapons would continue to reach Israel, but secretly and at a slower rate, and there was new need to conserve ammunition. While he rejected repeated requests by Narkis to mount an infantry breakthrough to Mount Scopus, Diane sanctioned a number of actions in response to a new eastern threat. The air forces of Jordan, Syria, and Iraq would be neutralized along with a radar facility at Ajloun. The enemy's front-line positions around the old city would also be reduced. The 10th Harrell Brigade, along with several units from the Northern Command, would be activated for the possible implementation of Operation Whip against Jordan. Shortly before 12.30, the IAF conducted a lightning strike against the airfields of Mafrak and Amman. Before the war, Weizmann had favoured eliminating the Jordanian Air Force even without provocation as a preventive measure, but Rabin had vetoed the idea. Now, after the hawker attacks on Netanyah, Weizmann had his pretext. The hawkers were on the ground refuelling when the Israelis struck. Within nine minutes, both bases were rendered inoperable, the runways cratered, their control towers knocked out. The second Israeli wave came at 1.10pm and completed the task by destroying all twenty of Jordan's hawkers. Eight other aircraft went up in flames, along with General Bull's private plane. A sole C-130 Hercules managed to take off with fourteen pilots for the H-3 airfield in western Iraq, there to continue the battle. Israel lost a single mystère to ground fire. Hussein watched the attack from his yard, where his young sons, Abdallah and Faisal, thrilled to the thud of the bombs. He witnessed the death of his friend Major Firas Ajluni as he tried to take off in his jet. The king's presence at home, he would later claim, saved his life, for his office at the Basman Palace was riddled with Israeli cannon and rocket fire. Another observer of the slaughter was Wasfi al-Tal, the royal adviser who had opposed Jordan's alliance with Egypt. 
Tal slapped his hands over his eyes and wept. We've lost everything our majesty built over the entire course of his rule. He then turned to Shukeri, berating him as if he were Nasser. And where is the Egyptian air force? Where are your MiGs, your missiles? For Jordan, the destruction of the air force was only the beginning of Israel's retribution. The IAF also attacked the 40th Brigade as it moved south from the Damia Bridge. Major Arya ben Or, commander of the Fuga squadron that rocketed the Jordanians, recalled that it was an extraordinary experience flying over Bethlehem, Hebron, and Jericho. The feeling was that this time we're fighting on our historic homeland. The Fugas destroyed dozens of tanks and set alight an ammunition convoy of twenty-six trucks. I didn't know that the fighting there would release such powerful emotions hidden inside me, admitted Ben Orr, who would die on a similar sortie five days later up north. In Jerusalem, Israel responded to the Jordanian bombardment by unleashing a secret weapon, codenamed L, after its inventor, Colonel David Laskov, of the IDF engineering branch. Hidden in all the forward bunkers and pre-sighted on enemy positions opposite, the L was a coffin-shaped ground-to-ground missile that hit with devastating impact. People, sandbags, stones flew into the air, one eyewitness remembered. Thick clouds of smoke enshrouded all the Jordanian bunkers. Pieces of buildings fell down on them, and telephone poles. One Arab legionnaire surrendering was convinced that Israel had dropped an atomic bomb. Yet even as Israel took a more aggressive stand against Jordan, it continued to seek ways of containing, if not ending, the battle. An 11:40 attempt by General Bull to arrange a ceasefire was accepted by the Israelis. Their representative to the IJMAC, Colonel Jerry Bieberman, met with Jordan's Colonel Stanawi and informed him, on the basis of reliable sources, that the Egyptian air force has been annihilated, and therefore Jordan should agree to a ceasefire immediately. The initiative made no impression, however. In a radio address, Prime Minister Juma told listeners, "We are today living the holiest hours of our life." United with all the other armies of the Arab nation, we are fighting the war of heroism and honor against our common enemy. We have waited years for this battle to erase the stain of the past. Loudspeakers atop the dome of the Rock Mosque exhorted the faithful to take up your weapons and take back your country stolen by the Jews. Thus entreated, the legion began its attack. At 12:45, Major Badi Awad, commander of the 27th Isam bin Zayed Battalion, had been listening to radio reports of Egyptian victories and of Jordan's capture of Government House when he received the password "Way of Happiness." Sabil Al Saada sent directly from Riyadh's office. This was the go-ahead for Awad and two companies to proceed up the ridge. Awad, stocky and tough, a veteran of the Jerusalem Battle of 1948. Was certain that the Israelis would counterattack with tanks, yet he was confident of his ability to defend the position with his four hundred men, his four recoilless rifles, plus some heavy machine guns and mortars from behind the walls of the compound. Known in Hebrew as Armon Hanatziv, the Commissioner's Palace, and in Arabic as Jabal Al Mukabar, the Exalted Hill. The government house compound had served as headquarters for the British mandate, and then, after 1948, for UN observers. The building occupied the easternmost point of a ridge dominating the vital axis to Bethlehem and Hebron, and could be used as a staging ground for cutting off either Arab or Jewish Jerusalem.
As such, both the Israelis and the Jordanians had contingency plans for seizing the ridge in wartime. Though demilitarized under the armistice, the area was flanked on the south and southeast by a string of fortified Jordanian emplacements, and on the west by an Israeli experimental farm and the Allenby base. The IDF also maintained a secret lookout post on the northern slope of the ridge, the so-called Isolated House, to provide advance warning of any Jordanian movements there. Yet in contrast to Mount Scopus and the DZs with Syria, the ridge had rarely been a source of Jordan-Israel friction. Minor run-ins did, however, occur between Israel and the UN, such as that on May the 11th, when Bull complained that the UN flag had been stolen from a top government house and replaced by a powder-blue pyjama bottom of Israeli manufacture. Major Awad's men dug in around the wooded perimeter of Government House, from where they directed mortar and recoilless rifle fire at Ramat Rachel, Allenby, and the Jewish section of the mixed neighborhood of Abu Tor. Bull ran out to them, furious. I don't remember ever having been so angry in my life, his memoirs relate. He insisted that Awad reconfirm his orders from Riyadh, and the Major promptly obliged, suggesting that all civilians be evacuated from the area. Bull refused, and instead barricaded himself and his workers inside the compound. From there he tried to contact the Israeli foreign ministry, hoping to avert a counterattack. The time was 1.35 p.m. Awad sent an advance patrol to scout out Israeli strength at the western end of the ridge. Approaching the experimental farm, these soldiers came under fire from Rachel Kaufman, the wife of the farm's director, and three workers armed with old Czechoslovakian guns. Reports from the farm, as well as from the isolated house, had corroborated Jordan's offensive. Word had also spread to East Jerusalem, where Life magazine correspondent Georges de Cavallo witnessed Arab residents celebrating the fall of Government House Ridge and cheering, "'Tomorrow we shall take Tel Aviv!' Already alarmed by these events, the Israelis were then dumbfounded when, at two o'clock, Amman radio proclaimed the fall of Mount Scopus. Remembering how the announcement of the seizure of Government House had preceded the actual attack, Narkis concluded that Israel's enclave was next. It was a sign that the Jordanians had a plan, he later testified, a plan revealed by their overzealousness and their sense that their problem was at last solved. His estimate was that hundreds of Jordan's Patton tanks would ascend the Jordan Valley to Ramallah and attack Mount Scopus from the rear. The journey would take eight hours. Circumstances for the Israelis had turned critical. From Government House Ridge, Jordanian forces could fan out through Jerusalem's southern neighborhoods, Tal Piot, Katamon, San Simon, and link up with troops and tanks descending Mount Scopus in the north. The entire city could be lost. In the West Bank, meanwhile, Iraq's 8th Mechanized Brigade, reinforced by a Palestinian battalion, was proceeding to the Damya Bridge, taking up positions formerly held by the 40th Armored Brigade. Together with the seven Jordanian brigades in the area, the Iraqis could spearhead an effort to sever Israel in half. These events necessitated a major re-evaluation of Israel's strategy in the east. Convening with Eshkol, Rabin, and Yariv in the pit, Dayan spoke of the need to silence the long-range guns that had already caused serious damage to Ramat David. Israeli tanks would have to attack the batteries near the West Bank city of Jenin, preferably without entering the city itself. 
The shelling in Jerusalem would also have to be stopped and any Jordanian advances reversed. Most crucially, Mount Scopus would have to be relieved. In preparation for that effort, Diane was willing to consider the capture of the Latrun Corridor, but no additional conquests. Our purpose was to strike Egypt and no one else, he said. I suggest we don't get caught up in two wars. Eshkol went along with this plan, but then Rabin objected. We are pounding their, Jordan's, air force. Why do we have to conquer their territory at this stage? Yariv agreed. Hussein has to act against us, but what we're doing now is providing him with a basis for acting. The defence minister registered this advice and asked that further attempts be made to convince the Jordanians to stop firing. But to Colonel Lior, also present at the meeting, Diane appeared to be contradicting himself, saying he wanted to avoid war with Jordan while opening offensives against it. The man said one thing for posterity and protocol, and in the field did something else entirely, he wrote. Damn it, what did Moshe Dayan really want? In the field, though, Dayan's directives bore no such ambiguity. He gave the green light to the Northern Command to release two armoured brigades to begin the assault on Janine, and then instructed Rahavam Zevi, the Deputy Chief of Operations, to draw up an attack plan for Jerusalem. The Harrell Brigade's tanks were to advance along the Jordanian-held ridge that dominated the Jerusalem-Tel Aviv Highway, block any enemy armour descending from the north, and relieve the garrison at Mount Scopus. Simultaneously, infantry would breach the fortified Jordanian positions at the enclave's southern foot. Government House and its ridge were to be retaken immediately. The latter task fell to Lieutenant Colonel Asher Dreisin, 34, commander of Reserve Battalion 161 of the Jerusalem Brigade. Shortly before the outbreak of hostilities, Rabin had told the unit that, I fought here in 48. I hope if we have to fight here in this war that you will complete what we were unable to finish. Dreisen shared that sentiment. Like many of the brigade's regular officers, he was anxious to avoid war, but also to smash the myth of the Legion's invincibility. He had already prepared a plan for regaining Government House, but when the order to attack arrived, he had time only to draw a map in the dirt and curtly brief his men. Because of the swiftness of everything, I had a feeling that we would surprise the Jordanians, he later told fellow officers. Still, the operation was complicated, confused. Dreisen's force, setting out from Allenby at 224, consisted of two infantry companies and eight Sherman tanks. Of the latter, several broke down en route, or got stuck in the mud of the experimental farm. Three tanks remained for the assault. Resistance was determined. Ensconced behind the compound's walls, Awad's legionnaires succeeded in knocking out two of the Shermans, killing one Israeli, a company commander, and wounding seven others, among them Dreisen. But superior in firepower and numbers, the attackers eventually broke through the building's western gate and began clearing the compound with grenades. Bull raced about frantically, shouting at the Israelis to hold their fire that the Jordanians had already fled. Dreisen consented, and just in time, a grenade had been readied for a room found later to contain thirty UN workers, together with their wives and children. Relations between Israel and the UN, never ideal, were hardly enhanced by the action. The Israelis had not spared ammunition in their charge, damaging much of the compound and destroying Bull's car. 
the UN chief wanted the building evacuated, but the Israelis, angry that the Jordanians had so easily gained entrance to it, refused. Dreisen did not have time to argue, though. The battle was continuing, first on the high ground behind Government House, Antenna Hill, and then in a series of bunkers to the west and the south, each nicknamed for its shape, the Bell, the Sausage. Beyond lay the Arab villages of Surbahir and Jabal al-Mukabar. The fighting, often hand to hand, raged for nearly four hours. Awad and his surviving men fell back to trenches held by troops of the Hittin Brigade, and called for reinforcements from the armoured brigades in the Jordan Valley. None came, and the legionnaires were steadily overwhelmed. By 6.30 p.m. they had retired to Bethlehem, leaving close to one hundred dead and wounded. The Reisin, twice more wounded and down to ten men and scant ammunition, was hardly in better shape. Yet the Israelis, who dug in that evening on Government Hill Ridge, expecting a counterattack, had indeed shattered the legion's myth of invincibility. They also controlled South Jerusalem. The Jordanian attack on Government House had not come as a surprise to Uzi Narkis, nor was the Central Command Chief disappointed. Jewish Jerusalem was being shelled, and now he had the grounds for responding. At the height of that battle, at 3.10, Narkis was offered the service of the 55th Paratrooper Battalion under Colonel Mordecai Mota Gur. Their original assignment, a combined parachute drop and amphibious assault on Al-Arish, had been obviated by the quick pace of the Sinai offensive. The paratroopers were packed onto buses and rushed to Jerusalem. The 55th dropped on us from heaven, Narkis regaled his staff after the war. The South's heaven didn't want them. Though Diane refused to entertain even the suggestion of capturing the old city, Narkis was set on that goal. Here, finally, was the opportunity to rectify Israel's failure in 1948, a miraculous second chance. However it, fighting, started in Jerusalem, I knew I would end up in the old city, he later admitted to his staff. No sooner had Gur arrived at Central Command than Narkis told him, Take whatever you can while there's still light. The colonel, the country's youngest brigade commander, had fought only briefly in 1948 and only in the Negev. Nevertheless, he had been born in the old city, and shared Narkis's vision of its capture. He promptly positioned his paratroopers to move on both Mount Scopus and the old city. "'We will free Jerusalem!' Gur exclaimed. But the task would not be that simple. Gur and his officers knew little of the lay of the city. They had rarely trained for urban combat, and lacked maps and aerial photographs of the battleground, many of which were destroyed in the Jordanian shelling." Now, with much of their heavy weapons and communications equipment still packed for the airdrop, the paratroopers had only five hours to formulate a plan. Our objective was to transform the brigade into a force that would be ready to fight in Jerusalem by midnight, recalled Colonel Arik Achmon, the 55th's intelligence officer. The problem was not how to do it right, but how to avoid doing it terribly. Merely assembling the paratroopers proved to be a major obstacle, as the Jordanian bombardment forced the buses onto unpaved detours that were already jammed with the Harold Brigade's vehicles. Like the paratroopers, the brigade was also a stranger to the area. All its manoeuvres had been in the Negev, and ill-equipped to deal with the dense minefields and rocky hillsides so inimical to tanks. We faced two enemies— 
"'The Jordanians and the Touraine,' said Colonel Aharon Gal, a battalion commander after the battle. "'I couldn't tell you which was worse.' To its advantage, the tenth had as its senior commander Uri ben Ari, a colourful, captious figure whose father had won the Iron Cross fighting for Germany in World War I, only to die in Dachau. Escaping to Palestine, Ben Ari, born Banner, fought with the Harald Brigade in 1948, and in 1956 commanded the first tank to reach the Suez Canal. Though a financial scandal ended his military career, he continued to study German panzer tactics, and even affected a riding crop. Of the first day of the war, he recalled, We were all sorry about being in the Central Command. The war, we were told, started at eight, and by ten-thirty we were still sitting around. We sat like pregnant women. We knew something was going to be born, but didn't know what. The orders finally came in the afternoon. As stipulated by Diane, the brigade was to attack northward into the hills overlooking the Jerusalem-Tel Aviv highway, penetrating at three points, and then proceed east for eleven miles through the fortified villages of Bidu, Nabe Samuel, Beit Iksa, and Sheikh Abd al-Aziz. The goal was to reach the Ramallah-Jerusalem highway near Beit Hanina, take the Arab neighborhood of Shuafat, and link up with the paratroopers at Mount Scopus. By 4 p.m. the bulk of the forces were in place. Facing them was Jordan's al-Hashimi brigade, infantrymen, and two battalions of Egyptian commandos. Though they possessed considerable intelligence on the enemy, the Israelis were unprepared for the difficulty of the terrain and the complexities of their objectives. Two miles north of the armistice line, they encountered Radar Hill, a former British-built radar station, scored with bunkers and surrounded by three hundred metres of mines. Colonel Gall recounted, The tanks that were supposed to cover our advance hit mines. Our forces were scattered. With no other choice, the infantry had to attack without tank cover, under a heavy Jordanian bombardment, leaping from stone to stone to avoid the mines. The battle was brutal, with knives and bayonets. The worst problem was the mines, which, according to Ben Ari, were both old and new and totally unpredictable. We didn't have equipment for clearing them. Dozens of legs were lost. Two Israelis had been killed and seven Shermans destroyed. Jordanian casualties were also relatively light, eight killed, but by midnight the Al-Hashimi Brigade was falling back to positions to the north of the road to Ramallah, leaving it open to Israeli tanks. Mount Scopus could be relieved, and Arab Jerusalem severed from the northern west bank, which itself was under attack. As shelling from the Jordanian long toms between the villages of Burkin and Yabad intensified in the late afternoon, an Ugda under Brigadier General Elad Peled moved into position. His forces, deployed for action against Syria, had to be hastily repositioned toward Jordan, regrouping in transit. Peled was a soldier's soldier, having served first as a teenager as a Haganah scout, and then in a series of infantry and armoured commands, culminating in his appointment as assistant to the IDF chief of operations. The terrain he entered, less mountainous than that around Jerusalem, and replete with roads, was ideal for tanks. Rolling from Israel's Jezreel Valley, site of the legendary Armageddon, into Jordan's Dothan Valley, Ilan planned to surround Janine and compel its surrender. His force consisted of two armoured brigades on loan from Northern Command, and from Central Command a mechanised brigade of infantry. 
We crossed the border at seventeen hundred hours, and penetrated deep into enemy territory, Paled recounted. At the front there were batteries of anti-tank guns, but our tanks passed right through them. Only then did the Jordanian gunners wake up and open fire with light arms. Charged with stopping Elad were three Jordanian infantry brigades and one armoured brigade, along with a half-dozen supporting battalions. Part of this force had been drawn off by an Israeli feint into the northern Jordan Valley, near Beit Shean, while the rest was spread across the countryside. The stretching of Jordan's defences over a thirty-mile front led Colonel Awad Bashir Khalidi, commander of the 25th Khalid bin Walid Infantry Brigade, to protest directly to Hussein. I appreciate your political problem in abandoning villages, but you cannot have politics and the military at the same time. But to his advantage, Khalidi had the trench works and bunkers around Janine, and thorough knowledge of the terrain. He also could count on strong reinforcements from the 40th Armoured Brigade. The youngest brigade in the Legion, commanded by Brigadier General Rukun al-Ghazi, the 40th, boasted M47 and M48 Patton tanks, and an infantry battalion equipped with M113 armoured personnel carriers. The force had been positioned to reach Janine area within twelve hours, but then, with the outbreak of war, had been shifted south toward Jerusalem and blooded by the IAF. Now, as the Israeli threat to Janine materialized, Riyadh ordered the brigade north again in daylight, fully exposing it to Israel's aerial might. Dozens of vehicles were obliterated. Also hit was Iraq's 8th Mechanized Brigade, en route from Mafraq to replace the 40th at Damya. The Israeli offensive began at 4 p.m. and involved a pincer of the armoured brigades under Colonel Uri Ram and Lieutenant Colonel Moshe Bar Kokfa, Brill, swinging south and southwest, respectively, of Janine, while the infantry of Colonel Ahran Avnon descended from the north. The two axes to these destinations, the Megiddo Janine and Afula Janine roads, were both covered by Khalidi's 25th Brigade. No sooner had the Israelis crossed the border than the legionnaires greeted them with a storm of artillery, tank, and mortar fire. We thought we were the only people being attacked, Khalidi concluded, his troops coming under heavy bombardment from both the ground and the air. His men, well concealed and armed with anti-tank weapons and some thirty tanks, nevertheless put up a savage resistance, at one point enveloping the lead Israeli force until they in turn were enveloped. At close range, the Israeli Shermans were able to penetrate the armour of the Jordanians' more modern patterns, and to ignite their external fuel tanks. Israeli reconnaissance companies meanwhile took the strategic Arabe Junction, blocking the enemy's reinforcements. Yet still the Jordanians battled. Khalidi called for air cover. His request passed from Riyadh in Amman to Cairo, where Fatsi conveyed it to the Syrians. With Jordan beleaguered and Egyptian tanks crossing the Negev, now was no time to hang fire, the general said. Fatsi's reply came at 9.30 that night. Syrian planes would attack Israeli forces in the Janine area at first light tomorrow. In fact, Syria had little air force left. Two-thirds of it, two Ilyushin-28 bombers, 32 MiG-21s, 23 MiG-17s and three helicopters, had been eliminated in 82 midday sorties conducted by the IDF against the air bases of Dmer, Damascus, Saikal, Marjrial and T-4. 
The Iraqi base at H-3 was also hit, and ten of its planes destroyed. Shorn of the element of surprise, the Israelis lost ten planes as well, most of them to ground fire. Six pilots were killed, two of whom managed to bail out, only to be butchered by Syrian villagers. Our forces carried out a heavy bombing of the enemy throughout the northern sector, declared Hafez al-Assad. The enemy has lost most of its air power. The Syrians claimed that they, and not Israel, had started the war, that sixty-one Israeli planes had been downed and Haifa's oil refinery raised. We have decided that this battle will be won for the final liberation from imperialism and Zionism. We shall meet in Tel Aviv, proclaimed President Atassi. The Syrians' sword-rattling merely hid their shock at the devastating blow just dealt them. Central Front Commander Mustafa Tlas, having narrowly escaped his tent as Israeli jets peppered it with cannon fire, quickly moved his headquarters to the rear. Major Tawfik al-Jahani offered me a cigarette to calm my nerves, but I refused it and swore off smoking from that moment on. But not all of Syria's officers were numbed. We must attack before Israel preempts and surprises us with a combined armoured and infantry assault, Assad urged at a meeting of the junta that afternoon. Atassi raised the possibility of striking Israel through Lebanon to lessen the danger of a counterattack on Syrian territory. But the Lebanese proved resistant to the idea, and orders were instead issued to begin Operation Victory at 5.45 the next morning. In preparation for the offensive, Syrian artillery was to open fire on Israeli settlements. Roshpina, Eilat Hachakar, and Mishmach Yadan were singled out along the thirty-mile front. The shelling commenced at 2.30 p.m. and intensified throughout the afternoon. Residents of the settlements furiously lobbied the government to invade the Golan and so free them once and for all from the Syrian threat. Yariv warned of a Syrian offensive forming in the central Golan sector, opposite Kibbutz Gadot, and reported that Russian communications had been intercepted in the area. Rabin requested permission to strike preemptively, at least across the DZs, but Dayan would not be persuaded. With Israeli forces already fighting on two fronts, they hardly needed to face a third, the defence minister reasoned. Reluctantly, he allowed IDF artillery and planes to return Syria's fire, but warned them to avoid hitting civilian villages. As long as Damascus refrained from land operations, Diane decided, there would be no war in the north. Diane's efforts to limit the conflict, earnest, or, as Lior believed, disingenuous, could not diminish the fact that tens of thousands of men, Arabs and Israelis, were already engaged in combat. Though the course of the fighting, particularly in the air, had gone in Israel's favour, there was no way of predicting the directions it would ultimately take. The same chaos that had characterized political events of the preceding months continued to hold sway in the war. But the context also remained salient, a context comprised not only of the actions of Israel and the Arab states, but of the United States, the Soviet Union, and the UN.